All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 418, This Week in Space History for March 23rd through the 29th. I'm John Moldmix. Quarantine life is still going all right for us here in Colorado. There still are a bunch of small businesses open for drive through service for coffee and food and stuff like that. So we have been trying to support them as best as we can for just the you know going and picking up something. Um, it's really going to be a struggle for a lot of those small places to stay open. So wherever you're at in your neck of the woods, if you have the ability to support a small business, I highly recommend doing so. Um, here in Loveland and Fort Collins, you know, there's tons of coffee places. I want to give a shout out to Dark Heart Coffee in Loveland. They always have delicious drinks. And this morning I had a honey latte uh, that was just really nice. And it was, it was good to be able to get out, pick that up. We have the, you know, the social distancing, all of that other stuff, you know, really try to keep those small businesses open during what is, you know, one of the most difficult economic times potentially that we've had in the last hundred years. So here's to keeping everybody employed as best as we can. We've got some really fun space history this week. And in honor of this first piece of space history, I think I should pick up some corned beef and rye bread next time I'm at the grocery store. The first crewed launch of a Gemini spacecraft took place on March 23rd, 1965. A Titan II rocket lifted the Molly Brown capsule and astronauts Gus Grissom and John Young into space. Gemini 3 lifted off at 9.24 a.m. Eastern Standard Time from Launch Complex 19. Gus Grissom was the second American launched into space during the Mercury program on a suborbital trajectory in his Mercury Atlas spacecraft. The Liberty Bell 7 ended up sinking to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, and it was recovered in the 1990s and restored by the Cosmosphere. I was lucky enough to be able to see Liberty Bell up close and personal last summer, and that was just an incredible sight. For his second space flight on Gemini 3, he flew into space with astronaut John Young. Young went on to have a storied career, making six flights into space. He walked on the moon during Apollo 16 and even flew the space shuttle on STS-1 and STS-9. Young's first flight on Gemini 3 was memorable, thanks to the corned beef sandwich that he smuggled into space. The astronauts found that the bread crumbled pretty badly in space, so he couldn't really eat all of it. Bread and microgravity do not mix, so NASA eventually settled on the use of tortillas, which is something I talked about way back in episode 196. It was during STS-61B that tortillas were first used by astronauts as a bread substitute. Speaking of bread substitutes, since everybody seems to be panic buying toilet paper and bread, some of us, myself included, have used tortillas as a substitute. Enough about tortillas, it's making me want to go get a taco. Let's get back to Jiminy 3. 
Gemini 3 was important for a number of reasons. The Gemini spacecraft was designed to be more maneuverable, a key component for orbital rendezvous and docking procedures that would be used in the Apollo program. Grissom and Young tested the maneuverability of the capsule during this flight, they changed the orbit of the spacecraft on two occasions with the onboard thrusters, proving that orbit could be changed after launch. These procedures helped astronauts prepare for the rigors of an Apollo flight, specifically the docking, undocking, and eventually redocking the lunar module and command and service module. Grissom and Young orbited Earth three times in their capsule, which was nicknamed Molly Brown, a bit of a humorous call-out to Grissom's previous capsule, the Liberty Bell 7, which, as I mentioned earlier, had sunk, due to an error with the hatch blowing early. Coincidentally, this was the first and last Gemini capsule to have a name. All other Gemini missions were referred to by their number, not by a special name. And lastly, Gemini 3 was the shortest flight of the program, clocking in at just under five hours long. Next up, we fast forward a couple decades. On March 23, 2001, the Mir space station re-entered Earth's atmosphere after 15 years of service. The station was launched by the Soviet Union. Then, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, it became a place where Russian cosmonauts and United States astronauts conducted their first long-duration cooperative missions. I've talked about Mir on numerous occasions, specifically episodes 19, 44, 46, and 285, among many others. Be sure to check those out in the show notes. Mir re-entered Earth's atmosphere above the Pacific Ocean, part of a controlled deorbiting plan that allowed the Russians to minimize the risk to people on the ground. Mir, like Skylab, wasn't designed to survive the extreme heat and aerodynamic forces of re-entry, so as it descended, the solar panels began to break off, followed by smaller components, and then finally the core blocks of the station that made it through the atmosphere without completely burning up. In a bit of a publicity stunt, Taco Bell put a 40-foot by 40-foot target in the Pacific Ocean. If a piece of mirror had hit that target, everyone in the United States would have received free tacos, which is fitting considering we've just talked about tortillas and bread in space. According to a NASA blog post, the space agency gets their tortillas from the United States military. I find this next part especially interesting. Quote, in August 2017, acting NASA Administrator Robert Lightfoot ate a meal that included tortillas from 2015. Two years of a shelf life is absolutely wild for any food, especially a tortilla. I'll be linking to these out-of-this-world tortillas in the show notes. As far back as the mid-90s, NASA was also working on generating shelf-stable tortillas that could last for as long as six months, so it's incredible to think that they've basically quadrupled the amount of time that the tortillas can be on station or in space before astronauts eat them. Since we're totally off-topic for space history, as might as well keep that up, the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Cause and Effect, aired on March 23rd, 1992. This episode sees the crew of the Enterprise caught in a temporal causality loop, 
or a time loop, that sees the Enterprise destroyed over and over again. Actor Kelsey Grammer makes a cameo appearance in this episode as Captain Morgan Bateson, the captain of the USS Bozeman, which was the other Starfleet ship that made an appearance in this episode. Now, back to some history. On Saturday, March 24, 2006, a SpaceX Falcon 1 rocket lifted off for the first time. About 30 seconds into flight, things started to go badly. I'm linking to a video in the show notes that shows liftoff and the eventual tumbling out of control of this vehicle. That launch was 14 years ago. The progress that SpaceX has made since these early, unsuccessful Falcon 1 flights is something to be celebrated, especially when you take a look at their launch cadence here in 2020. The fifth reflight of a Falcon 9 rocket is proof that SpaceX is making significant progress on booster reusability. Congratulations to SpaceX on this anniversary. It may not have been successful, but it was an important first step. Now let's go back to the 90s. On March 24, 1992, the Space Shuttle Atlantis launched on a nearly nine-day-long mission. Atlantis carried the ATLAS, or Atmospheric Laboratory for Applications and Science Experiments, inside the cargo bay. The shuttle mission had numerous familiar faces, everyone from Charlie Bolden, who was the commander, to mission specialists Kathy Sullivan and Michael Fall. I'm linking to the post-flight video presentation that the National Space Society has in the show notes. I really love watching those videos, so thanks to everyone at the National Space Society for making those available. Next up, we've got the anniversary of a birthday and a death. The two people that I want to talk about were Werner von Braun and Jules Verne. Von Braun was born on March 23, 1912, and Verne died on March 24, 1905. Jules Verne saw much of the 19th century in his life, and he wrote a considerable number of important works, from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea to his book From the Earth to the Moon. In his lifetime, von Braun moved from developing the V-2 rocket for the Nazi regime to designing systems that sent humans beyond low Earth orbit and to our moon. The reason that I want to mention these two historical figures in the same episode is because I find it remarkable how much progress was made from the years that Verne was writing in to the years that von Braun was experimenting with rockets. Humanity literally moved from science fiction to science fact in those decades. In their own unique ways, Verne and von Braun opened up the imaginations of people around the world. I'm linking to some articles on both Verne and Von Braun in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. One thing I would caution against is thinking that we made more progress in the early years of the space race compared to now. The work that's being done with additive manufacturing and reusable rockets with Blue Origin and SpaceX are just a few of the exciting avenues that are just now being explored. Next up, we've got Explorer 10. NASA's Explorer 10 mission lifted off on March 25, 1961 from Cape Canaveral. This mission was designed to, quote, investigate the magnetic fields and plasma as the spacecraft passed through Earth's magnetosphere into cislunar space. The satellite was launched into a highly elliptical orbit. 
Like many early U.S. spacecraft, Explorer 10 was small. It weighed only 79 kilograms, or about 174 pounds. This probe was spin-stabilized, which is something I've talked about before, but here's a quick primer in case you're new to the podcast. Think of a football, and for everyone out of the United States, I'm talking about American football here. When a quarterback throws the ball, they impart spin on it to keep it stable, which gives it a more accurate flight path. Explorer 10's powered journey into cislunar space was a short one, since its batteries only functioned on the outgoing trip, or about 52 hours before draining completely. Another launch took place on March 25th. This one was a joint Italian and American launch in 1988. The San Marco DL spacecraft explored solar activity, and it launched from the Luigi Broglio Space Center, which is an offshore platform called the San Marco Platform. I talked about this spaceport way back in episode 185, and I still want to do an episode on the Space Center in the future. It's just it's one of the many, many topics I've yet to explore. We've got another birthday here today. American astronaut Jim Lovell was born on March 25th, 1928, in Cleveland, Ohio. Lovell turns 92 this year, so happy birthday to Commander Lovell. Lovell flew on Gemini 7 and 12. He was also one of the three humans to first orbit the moon during Apollo 8, and he went on to command Apollo 13, one of the most incredible missions in NASA history, and one that's coming up on its 50th anniversary in just a few weeks. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned Explorer 10, and I want to go back to the Explorer program, and let's chat about Explorer 3. Explorer 3 launched on March 26, 1958, and it was the first successful follow-up to the Explorer 1 mission, which launched in January of 1958. According to NASA, quote, data from Explorer 3 combined with earlier measurements from Explorer 1, confirmed Principal Investigator James Van Allen's theory that radiation belts trapped by Earth's magnetic field exist around our planet. These early Explorer missions provided critical insights into the space environment around Earth. NASA now runs the Explorers program, which provides, quote, frequent flight opportunities for world-class scientific investigations from space utilizing innovative, streamlined, and efficient management approaches within the heliophysics and astrophysics science areas. The program seeks to enhance public awareness of, and appreciation for, space science and to incorporate educational and public outreach activities as integral parts of the space science investigations. Another exceptional part about this program is that missions are not able to exceed 200 million in total cost to NASA. For this next piece of history, let's head back to 1969. Mariner 7 launched on March 27, 1969. Its destination, Mars. After a multi month cruise, Mariner 7 arrived at Mars on March 5, 1969. The spacecraft flew by the planet, making its closest approach, taking pictures, and gathering data before speeding on by. Mariners 6 and 7 were launched within a month of each other and completed the first dual mission to the Red Planet. Both of these spacecraft flew over Mars's equator, 
and South Pole regions. They analyzed, quote, atmosphere and surface with remote sensors, as well as recording and relaying hundreds of pictures. By chance, both flew over cratered regions and missed both the giant northern volcanoes and the equatorial Grand Canyon discovered later. The images that Mariner 6 and 7 took were recorded onto a digital tape recorder and then relayed back to Earth. On March 28, 1963, a Saturn I rocket lifted off on the final uncrewed flight test of the first stage of this rocket. This launch was notable because it was designed to test the engine-out capability of the Saturn I rocket. As planned, engine number 5 cut out, and the flight continued as seven other engines on the first stage continued to fire. I haven't had a chance to talk about it this month yet, but since it's Women's History Month, I want to share some resources available on NASA's websites. There's always amazing content for educators, as well as profiles on women in science, technology, engineering, math, all those STEM fields, and STEAM, don't forget the arts, that are related to NASA's mission. Now it's time for a little more Star Trek history. On March 29, 1968, the original series episode, Assignment Earth, aired on TV. As you heard from that opening sequence, the Enterprise was sent back in time to observe a rocket launch. While in orbit, the Enterprise intercepts a transporter beam, somehow, don't know exactly, but I'm sure there's some techno babble to back it up, and the mysterious Gary Seven and his cat Isis materialized on the Enterprise's transporter pad. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but this show has been out for a couple decades, so just check it out in the show notes. Speaking of Star Trek, Star Trek Picard is absolutely fantastic. The finale of this first season will be airing um, this week, actually, when this episode comes out. There's 10 episodes total. A couple of them have been a little bit slow, but really, truly, this has been some of the best Star Trek episodes of any series. Um, I know some people are a little bit mad that they have to pay for CBS All Access to get these episodes. I really don't mind paying either for the incredible writing. Some people haven't been huge fans of it, but frankly, I don't know what the heck they're talking about. Um, I've really enjoyed Star Trek Picard, so check it out. If you're really not wanting to pay for the service, you can always create a free account and binge all 10 episodes. But frankly, I think those people that are making that show deserve to be paid. Check it out. Give them a couple bucks and watch those episodes. Plus, there's some fun Star Trek Discovery episodes with Captain Pike in Season 2 of that show that are really good as well. And that's all I've got for history for this week. Um, again, I have launched a Patreon page for the podcast. Um, anything that you can chip in really would help me, you know, not only cover the hosting costs of the podcast between paying for the bandwidth for the podcasts, uh, paying for the software yay for Adobe Audition, um, that I use to produce this podcast. Um, you know, those, those monthly recurring expenses do add up. Um, also I would love to be able to get to a point where I can start going to more locations and actually recording audio and video, um, of launches of science events, um, and doing more than I can now on the last very shoestring budget that I've been running the podcast on for the last couple of years. So I am wanting to expand. Um, if you believe in the show and you enjoy what I do, 
I would love if you could flick me a couple bucks a month um, on Patreon and just, you know, help support the show and help me reach more people than I have been able to reach before. Um, you know, I do this out of love. I've never you know, wanted to make a profit on this show and the podcast is always going to be free. Um, but you supporting me on Patreon really is just a uh, vote of confidence as it were um, that you believe in the podcast and you want to do um, what you can to help me reach more people than before. Um, so anything that you can do would be appreciated. Again, um, I know economic times are pretty tight right now for everybody. Um, so even if it's just a couple bucks a month, um, anything that you can contribute would be really appreciated and it would make a material difference month to month. So I appreciate you taking the time to consider that. Um, the link to Patreon and all of the other things that I've talked about in this episode are in the show notes. I do have a call-in number. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.